begin this week's Odyssey House Journal's podcast with the burning, dirty old man question that I always have. What are you wearing, Rachel? I My shirt today is simple and to the point. It says, be a nice, be a kind human being. So I'm trying so that, to say that. that pretty much says it all. Is it from organi some organization or just your belief about the way you go through life? It's actually my belief on how I go through life. So be kind, be a kind human. That's a good thing to think about today. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you joined. Oh, I like your hair, by the way, too. Thank you. It's my, it's the Geico commercial that, that roughly mean. <laughs> I was inspired. Well, now that we're done with the fashion part of our show, <laughs> we should start with, uh, with who we are. I'm Randall Carlisle. That's Rachel Santizo. This is Odyssey House Journals, and it's a raw and honest uh, look at addiction and recovery in hopes of helping other people understand the disease or, or if you happen to be dealing with addiction to possibly get some help, right? Absolutely, well said. Okay. Hey, I just, I, I, this is really exciting. I got, we are one of the most watched podcasts and listened to uh, for addiction and recovery in the area. And I just got our analytics from our friend, Matt. And other than the United States, guess what our top two countries are of people watching and listening to this? So I'm not sure, but I am going to guess my state, or I'm going to, Yes, Russia, because my friend Igor. Your, your friend Igor is in Russia. You're right. Russia is second. In the last month, we had 43 people in Russia tune into this. So, Igor, if you're watching, uh, thank you. And Rachel's, yes, big love from Rachel. And as we said, if you ever make it to the U.S., we'll buy you some vodka that's better than your cheap vodka, Okay. I didn't mean to demean that. There's some good Russian vodka, although Rachel and I don't drink anymore. Right. The, number, the number one country outside the United States is, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a country where we make jokes of these people drinking a lot, which is not necessarily true, but it's a stereotype of their country. Can you think of it? Germany? No, think of all the, think of all the pubs in, in major cities. Where do they come from? Ireland? Pardon me? Ireland? Yes, you yes. got it. So Ireland, we, we had 47 people last month uh, tuning into our podcast. So that's incredible. Yeah. So when you when, and so all of you in Ireland, thank you for watching. And, and we are not making fun of you because we all have <laughs> the U.S. has as many issues as any other country does when it comes to addiction and recovery, if not more. Now, with all that said, Rachel has been doing so great getting guests on her podcast. Who do you have today? Thank you for that, Randall. Um, so today my word is going to be influential. This gentleman, he he's basically taken his trauma and transformed it um, into dance. And I'm so honored and excited to announce Austin Galipsy to our show today. Austin, come on down. There he is. Hi. Hello. You, you, right. have an, you have a, a, a live audience of two, so welcome. To Great. The, yes. So, <laughs> so, so can, you, can you give us a little background of your story and where, you're at to, where you were and where you're at today? Yeah, so 
Um, I was raised here in Utah. Um, and I was adopted. So uh, my mom's from, my birth family's from South Africa. And I was born during the apartheid. And people that, if you don't know what that is, um, basically my mom's white. So it was illegal for me to be conceived. Um, so I'm half Indian. So she um, found a family out here. Um, I was born and raised out here. And I think that's like where my first, my, my biggest struggle growing up was. Um, I didn't realize it was, I had an issue with it, but I think growing up and knowing I didn't look the same as my family um, was the first time I started to feel different um, and and had that longing to fit in, um, if that makes sense. And so we all we all have that longing as we're growing up, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and I had a really hard time hard time um, figuring out my place. So. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Farmington, um, and uh, of course, Farmington has a ton of mixed race people from South Africa, right? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. definitely not. So definitely um, uh, was a minority there, um, but yeah, I, I I'm also uh, gay as well. So growing up in the predominantly you know, the religion here. Um, my parents are, my dad worked for the church for 50 years. He was a bishop for six. Um, he retired from the church. So um, it was really hard to communicate. So um, when I was 15, I ended up finding somebody online um, who was much older than me. Uh, I was 15, he was 45. And that's um, when my trauma began. Um, it's also when my drinking started. So I started getting sexually abused when I was 15 and didn't really have anybody to talk to about it um, or open up to about it. Cause I felt like the, the problem wasn't the age difference. Cause I didn't know, I didn't really understand that. Um, it was me being gay. Um, and so I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody about it um, because of that. So um that went on for about a year. Um, and once I hit 17, I started using meth and that the rest was history. I didn't stop until um, I got locked up for a year. Um, and I started therapy after that. And during, during that time frame, um, and first I wanna be very sensitive and I wanna also um, tell you how grateful I am um, for, for you to be open about this, but you, um, during that time frame, you also contracted HIV, correct? Yes. yes. And how does that play a part in your story? That's a huge, 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 huge part. Um, and I'm sorry if I get emotional talking about, this is the first time I've like really opened up about this live like this without a therapist. Please don't ever be sorry about anything that you are because you are incredible regardless. Okay, thanks. Um, so yeah, I contracted HIV um, and through sharing needles. And um, I mean, it played a huge part with uh, me spiking my, my use up for sure. Um, I didn't know what it meant for me. Um, my mom asked me when I was gonna die when she found out and 
because it's a my my parents are pretty my my dad's 82 um my mom's um about 78 so I mean that age gap like in their generation too like HIV and AIDS was a death sentence and I believe that it was too I didn't know about it so I just assumed I was going to die soon so even though the doctor said you know I could live a long healthy life I didn't understand that um so when she asked me that I didn't get any hugs from my family like um I didn't get any support from my family I didn't they didn't know how to um they're very much what were you at this time I was 22. I was 22. So 10 years ago. And, and, um, and in those days, I, I mean, I remember it well when, when HIV and AIDS first came to the spotlight, people, people were like afraid to touch people with AIDS or to be around them at all. Uh, yeah, I was, I was afraid to touch people <laughs> because I had it. It was the, it went the other way too. Like I would bleach my shower I bleached the sink after I used a plate like it was dramatic like because I didn't understand it and I really thought I was plagued like I would cry every time I shaved um because if I saw any blood like I just I would cry and um because I felt like and and my friend Saquon um who started the um what I forgot what it's called hope on tap um where she does HIV testing and stuff but sure her story is similar where you know um contracting it 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 was me like I I it was my identity like I didn't have anything like it I felt so consumed by it um and it took a long it took a really long time to process I looked how did you I, I you're, you're describing, a, I, I mean, most of us, whether we understand addiction, recovery, anything else, I mean, you, you grow up mixed race, gay, in, uh, in Davis County, uh, 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 strong LDS parents. I mean, uh, you know, that's, a, that's a, almost a recipe for disaster. It's pretty understandable what you, what you went through. So how, and, and, and then, you, then you contract HIV to top it all off. I mean, so how did you get from there to where you're at today? I mean, that's a pretty miraculous story. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a huge process still. Like I'm still I still process uh, a lot of a lot of my trauma. Like I'm still it still creeps up. Um, but the the number one thing I did I went through a 12 step program was my first stint in recovery and it was called Valley Camp up in Ogden. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's an amazing place. Uh I went to an, I've, I've gone to several AA meetings in the summer where you have the bonfire. When is yeah. it on Saturday night? <laughs> so fun. Yeah. That's where I found my first community. I, I got um, clean and sober out there. Uh, it kept me like, I went back three times, but the third time I went there, I um, stayed clean for five and a half years. Um, Can I ask you a question about that, Austin? Yeah. Um, Regarding because you have this this family that's in the religion and you're feeling certain ways, you know, regarding it because of your identity and who you are. How did that, how did you transform that when you were doing 12 steps when it refers to God or higher power? Like, did, was that healing for you? Was that helpful? Like, how did that transform for you? Um, at first it was really hard. Um, that's when I left every time was during the God part. Like I didn't, like I, I didn't understand it. And I was so traumatized by the, the limitations of like me being able to communicate in the religion because I was raised up in this 
like my dad was a bishop like uh, we had standards we have to live by a certain um degree you know we had all these expectations on me and my brother um and so when I when I when I got to the second step and had to figure out my spirituality finally I was reading this book um called conversations with God um <laughs> and it talks about how God says hey I'm I am where you feel joy when you feel joy and happiness like that's where God is like whenever you um feel excited that's where I'm at you know um that's where your higher soul is so I turned on um you're gonna laugh at this it's super gay of me but I was listening to uh Teenage Dream by Katy Perry <laughs> and I was listening to this song in my in my room by myself listening to a little bit of my Walkman right and um the song I felt like my spirit was singing to me and saying hey let's run away and don't ever look back I can be your teenage dream and um I just it was the first time I felt connected to my soul and I just started crying and I'm like oh my god this is how I pray so I would hide in the woods at valley camp I'd go hide in the campgrounds every day and I just listened to my CD player um and my friends, uh, my sponsor and my friends would bring up different mixes and stuff for me to listen to. Um, but that's when I started realizing, um, started using dance as my spirituality because, and I think a huge part of it too is like, I wasn't able to communicate my whole life. And so being able to express myself in a way, cause I didn't ever learn how to speak about my trauma and like being able to dance through my pain and express it that way um is is kind of how um how I found my spirituality and fun um to go along with that with HIV um I plan when I first went to valley camp I planned on going there to get sober so I could die I wasn't going to take any meds I was just going to clean up my life um clean up my side of the street I was going to finish that all off and I wasn't going to take my meds and I was pretty open about it to a few people and was like, and to a couple of my friends and letting them know, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not, don't really want to keep going. Um, and, um, I was listening and dancing and praying to this, uh, album. I don't remember what it was, but I ended up walking in a snow in the snow and there was like this perfect pathway to this, like, just kind of like little tree and, but it had benches around it. So it had a little pathway. I walked through the snow over to it, sat down, listening to this song, dancing, and I had this overwhelming feeling that, hey, you can't help anybody unless you help yourself. Like you need to take your meds. And I just had like this overwhelming feeling that I needed to do that. And so I decided to go get checked, see if I was able to, if I had AIDS yet, and to see if um, I could take meds. Um, only to find you out. Right, that like so if you have if you have AIDS, you can't take meds. If you have AIDS. Well, you can't, you can't take meds. I, I just didn't understand. I still hadn't like, cause I wasn't planning on taking the meds. So I didn't really understand how it worked, but yeah, there's a lot of people that have beat AIDS that have gone to, um, and I don't know that all the terminology for it, but basically if your blood count, um, your viral load or your white blood cell count falls below a certain amount, then, um, it's AIDS. But if it's above a certain amount, it's HIV. 
right? It's like, it has to fall below 400 or something like that. But um, people, people can take meds and be, I know people that have had AIDS and now they have HIV. So yeah. yeah. I think but, that, but, that can keep us sick, right? Is um, fearful of like our physical health. And so for those that, that think that it's possible that they might have it or they do have it and they're afraid of it, like understanding that there's options. There's so many options and I'm like, it's not, it doesn't change my like quality of life at all. Any, any, like at all anymore. Um, it's still kind of like, it's a little, like I'm navigating still a little bit. Cause, um, I, I still felt like it was something that was limiting me, um, for the whole time I was sober that first stint. Um, now I, I'm still kind of working through that and realizing it's not. Um, but, um, that tree that I was sitting next to hit the person's ashes that were buried under it had died from HIV. Wow. So that's, that's, that's when my spirituality started building and I'm like, wow, there's something to this, you know? Um, and so that's why I kept dancing. And, um, I realized, uh, this, this go around now I've had a lot of clinical help, um, instead of just the 12 steps. Um, because I, I ended up relapsing five and a half years in um, and I was raped again um, three times, well, twice in a week. And um, it reopened all this um, trauma that I grew up with. Um, Cause there was many, that, that, that older man wasn't the only one. There was many after him. So, um, and it reopened all that trauma for me. So that's what I've been working with the last two and a half years. What uh, you know, a lot of people who don't understand addiction or recovery always ask the question. You said you went to Valley Camp three times, right? Before it worked. Okay. <laughs> yeah. what, what made it work the third time? Or what got you sober for the longest period of time? What was it? I think it was like it, I had, I just had to keep trying. I, I don't think it was like there was a, I mean, I went to different treatment centers even before that, which was forced on me, right? Um, or it was an uh, ultimatum for my family or whatever. Um, but when I started, I really start counting my recovery when I wanted to go. And um, I feel like it wasn't anything specific that kept me sober. It was really like learning that first 30 days that I was sober, like, I thought I was being honest. Like I really didn't know what honesty meant, right? I thought I was being honest to myself. I thought I was working the steps correctly. There were some things that I didn't want to talk about. So I didn't put them on my first step, right? Um, but I, or didn't talk about it or whatever. So I, that first 30 days, I learned a lot after the relapse. Uh, after I, I went back out, I learned a lot when I came back and then realizing, oh, I relapsed because I wasn't being honest or whatever the case may be. So each time I came back, I, I had a little longer, I stayed a little sober, a little bit longer. Um, but even though I relapsed, like I learned a lot from just that time being sober and realizing like, okay, I need to put in more work this time. You know, people don't realize that, uh, that th this is a disease we're talking about. It's a disease with learned behaviors that have gone over years and years and years. And for, to deal with the disease physically and then emotionally and change that learned behavior 
it's very hard to do. You can't do it in 30 or 60 days. It, it, it takes years. And, and that's why when people say, when, when you say you relapsed and then you learned, that's all part of the process. It doesn't mean you're a loser. It doesn't mean you're, you're back where you began. It, it's, it's just part of the learning process in recovery, right? Right, 100%. I have, um, I, I have been sober this stint two and a half years, but I still, I still recognize that I've been in recovery for eight. So I definitely, I definitely. That, that is such a good point. Um, so I feel like, so we talk about this, um, this art of expression dance, right? And I, and coming back, you created a dance that kind of like expresses this and it's the putting the mask on, right? Like the airplane. Yeah. I feel like maybe you could just do that dance and express and show people like what it is. I think that that, that those little movements speak volumes. Yeah, actually, one of my friends, me and my friend uh, growing up in high school, I was a cheerleader um, and she was on the dance company. Uh, yeah, her name's Angelica, but she made that up. And then I kind of created the reason behind it. Right. So um, and I showed I showed Rachel this. So um, it's called the flight attendant. Right. I wish we had a beat going on. Yeah. But yeah, so you got to grab when you grab a. Uh, air mask or what is it called the oxygen mask yeah so who do you put it on first yourself yourself right before you hand it to somebody else so you gotta right and then you gotta get the seat belts and then you gotta point for the exits you gotta have a relapse prevention plan that's what that is and then if that doesn't work you gotta grab your life vest put it on you gotta pull it, a, but it doesn't inflate. It so you have to do it manually, right? You gotta pull out that big book and. <laughs> no, but um, yeah. So we we started uh, creating choreography to to walk through different things, right? And what's funny is that you bring that up because I literally, I literally had somebody message me last night, and I have started doing this this week where I've grabbed this oxygen mask and I put it on my face just to see if I actually have it on first before I help somebody. And last night I'm like, I don't have mine on. I need to take, cause I've been so busy the last couple days, couple weeks. So I'm like, no, I need to take care of myself right now. How, so, do, how uh, do you, how do you spread your message of dance and recovery to the rest of all of us in the recovery community? Yeah. So we actually have a program called recovery vibe. All right. Uh, <laughs> um, but we meet every Thursday. Um, it, the, the location changes sometimes, but right now we're downtown. But yeah, we have a group of people that normally, that a regular group of people that come. Um, and none of them really want to be, I mean, some of them do, but none of them, most people don't, aren't coming to be professional dancers or to, they're here, they're have some fun. Honestly, I tell them at the end, it's a, it's a little trick to get them vulnerable because they get, it's embarrassing sometimes, or someone's new in recovery. It's like, I don't want to dance in front of a bunch of people. So we dim the lights and we teach some fun hip hop moves. Um, and I, sometimes it's choreographed to like walk through pain or, or one of my main ones that I made um, was walk, marching up to your trauma, zipping it up in a bag, and then relearning how to move your body without this weight on your body because a lot of the times we 
carry this weight and we're comfortable with it. So learning how to dance without it. Um, and then we circle up at the end and, and chat. Um, Boy, I, I can relate to that in my, in my uh, treatment program, they made us dance. I'm first of all, I'm an old fart. Secondly, I don't have any rhythm in my body. And I have always been uncomfortable if I ever had to try to dance fast. I can dance slow, but that doesn't take any skill. And so they made us do that. And, and, and it's exactly what you were saying. It, it made you vulnerable because you're, you're afraid to do it and, and you feel like an ass doing it. Right. You feel silly and you're like looking around at other people. And I still take, I love taking dance classes because I can know where I'm at in my head. Like how confident am I? Do I care about what other people think? Do I... Am I, am I really worried about this? So, um, but yeah, it gets people vulnerable. Then when we sit down and talk, they're not scared to talk because they just did something way more nerve, nerve wracking. And you've gone into treatment centers. I know that you've come into Odyssey House and we did the thriller dance. And so yeah. you the love within your community with those that are, are brand new. Yeah, yeah, we, I love, that's my favorite thing to do is going to treatment centers. So I am recovery, we go there as well. Um, we went to recovery ways for a while, COVID obviously has been changing things up. Um, and uh, 7th Street, love them. Austin, so I just want to thank you for everything. Um, I'd like to bring up one more topic that I think is so important for people to hear. Um, and we're, we're getting short on time. And so first, thank you for agreeing to speak about it. And I'm gonna let you speak about it how you want to, but it's the topic of when you're in recovery and you work so hard and then you're falsely accused of something. Like, how did you do it? Um, how did you remain sober? So honestly, I, um, I think that if I wasn't in a sober living home um, and going to treatment, I wouldn't be. Um, I have a lot of um, a lot of PTSD from rape, specifically. Um, it was pretty traumatic a couple of years ago um, how it happened. So um, I had done all this work, all this EMDR work. I had, um, thank God, um, once this happened. But um, somebody catfished me, attacked him. There was a magazine article. It was shared eight hundred times. Like my picture was shared. It was crazy and I was on camera and sober living right and I just built this huge community this new community in Salt Lake not Ogden this time and then everybody started unfriending me and I had I felt like I was so isolated but um I feel like how I did it was I reached out every second like I reached out every second um there were people making fake posts I was just talking to my friend about this and they would make posts with my face on it and message me saying that you're gonna get raped. And so of course this triggered my, like, I didn't know if people were coming to attack me or like just PTSD isn't rational, right? So I had, like I, I had, I didn't sleep for a few days um, my sober living home. Like I had to have my back to the wall. Um, um, I kept always checking the locks in my house. And um, so my community that I, that I had built in the sober living community, they'd helped me out a lot. Um, but it was really reaching out, like being like this time in recovery, I've reached out every time I need help because my feeling of being annoying, you know, like if I'm being a pest, like my life is worth that. Like I'm gonna risk being annoying 
and reaching out every time that I feel like I'm is gonna I'm gonna do something or feel like um, I'm gonna use or feel like I want to self harm or feel like anything like I'm gonna reach out because even if I'm bugging somebody or risk that so um, because my life's worth it so that's really the thing that saved me was reaching out every single time um and to multiple people like I didn't put that weight on one person like I I would message like 30 people at a time so that way I knew one person out of the 30 would message me back and it didn't I didn't have didn't couldn't have that well you didn't message me so I relapsed or anything like that so um I yeah that's that's what worked for me that's that you know that's that's the message in any treatment program or in AA meetings or anything else is if you need help, reach out and don't isolate yourself. I mean, so you were, you were really smart through all this. So but we, are, we are 29 minutes in, so we're almost out of time. I, you know, um, and I'll, I'll share with people, we were chatting before we started this and you said you were, you were nervous and a little uptight about, about doing the podcast. You have been wonderful, and I appreciate you sharing your story because uh, it's not easy to talk about all those things. But the the thing, and I'm sure you know this now after years and years of <laughs> of recovery, that you sharing your story, somebody else out there is going to be going through the exact same thing that you've gone through, and they'll see your success in recovery, and it'll help them. So, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And Austin, I, I haven't, we haven't done um, a podcast yet where I've had to hold back tears. And so I want you to understand like how influential you are just by using your voice. Like I could barely uh, hold back. And so I am glad that you decided to take your meds. I'm, I'm glad that you decided to sit. I'm glad that you decided to reach out. You are so worthy and deserving and we need more people like you. You're a good man, Austin. Thank you. And and what's it called? Recovery vibe. Right? Recovery vibe. Yep. Okay. Well, keep keep on doing your recovery vibes. We'll we'll keep on doing Odyssey House journals. And we thank everybody in Russia and Ireland and all over the world for watching and listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.